Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And today is the third and final episode in our How a Book Gets Made series. And we are talking all things marketing and publicity with Christina Ariola and Ashley Winstead, the author of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife and the forthcoming The Last Housewife. Yes. I actually worked with Christina at Bustle. And as you guys already know, I am a huge fan of Ashley's work. So this was a super fun conversation. But before we get into that convo, I want to talk highs and lows. Yes. Tell me your high, Olivia. I feel like I want to do a drum roll. I want (laughs) to do like a like fireworks dove release, which wouldn't work audio wise. But it, it, visually, for me, it would be very special, the dove release. What if there were, so, it's so hot in my apartment. What if there were just like <laughs> a flock of doves beneath the table? I would, I would, I would be so impressed. It would, we would just have to stop recording now because I mean, it, it would not get better than that. Okay. So the big news is that as of like a week ago, I am signed with a literary agent and I'm really excited about it. Huge congratulations. I remember at the beginning of the year, you posted uh, like your goals on Instagram on a story and like it was just only like get a book agent. Yes, it's so in my room I have this huge sheet of paper that sits above my desk and it has all of my major goals for the year. The vast majority of which we went over in our mid-year goals check-in. And yes, one of those was to get a literary agent, but I swear I did not see it happening. I mean, you can listen to the episode. I'm really like, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, things developed in a really interesting way that I'm super excited about. And I love my agent. The process was absolutely hell on earth, Becca knows. It was unique and just absolutely terrifying. I cannot stress enough the amount of pure terror I had having people read my work, which really wasn't in a place that I felt comfortable with yet. But I feel like I found someone who believes in me, who believes in my work. I respect her work. She's just wonderful. I just feel really like, I feel proud of myself. I do too. (laughs) Thank you. And Becca has been cheering me on and it's just been, it's been great. So I'm excited, but do you want to tell everyone you're high? I feel (laughs) like I'm more excited for you than I am for me. And I feel like I'm like, stealing your thunder because yours was like a really drawn out process no I mean what's funny is well I too side with a literary agent this week (laughs) the the funny part about it is like we went about this in two totally different ways for totally different reasons and we've somehow both signed with agents within the same different agents and also I feel like people are going to think that it's Taylor who is the agent in our (laughs) agent episode and and in neither case we both have different agents and they're not Taylor different agents different agencies but yeah what I'm so excited for you too it's been just so fun to like experience this together and do it our own way and with our own projects and yeah it's been really cool Olivia I'm so grateful for you I feel like having somebody else going through this process at the same time, roughly, has been such a sanity check for me. I know a lot of people who are authors, but they are published authors versus like going through the uncertainty of this process with you has been like Mm -hmm. so meaningful to me. Oh, me too. Especially as we've been interviewing absolutely phenomenal authors with really dreamlike publishing scenarios. I don't know how much else you want to share, but I feel like 
there's a lot of exciting things ahead. That's it for now. <laughs> oh, also, let's, I'm going let's to let's ride this high for a while. <laughs> also, I'm going to Maine for two weeks. Just letting you know, which I'm really That's excited about. Too. So I'm going to Maine for like a family trip for five days. And one of my best friends has a house in Maine. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be in Maine. Maybe I'll come visit you after my family trip. And she was like, yeah, you should. But she's like, also, we were talking about doing a girls weekend in Maine the next weekend. And I was like, so like, do you want me to stay with you for like 10 days? And she was like, sure. <laughs> so I'm I'm just like summering in Maine. Hannah Ornstein on Instagram is in Maine right now and is just making it look so aspirational. So oh, I'm ready. Just incredible. The sunsets. I It's going to be great. I'm ready. I can't wait to see the content. I'm ready. Let's talk lows. Yeah, my low is I, you know, I think part of it is because I've been in the process of really being critical about my own work and having people read my own work. But I've been in a reading slump. Like I've been reading, but I'm usually really consistently reading morning and night. And it just has not been that way. I cannot seem to get hooked as easily on things. But I'm going to take a few days off next week, really try to like celebrate this win of the agent and just like take a breath and really, I don't know, celebrate a win. I feel like it's so easy to minimize accomplishments and be like, oh, it's not special because X, Y, Z. Anyway, so I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to read. And yeah, I, I think I think we'll get back there. But yeah, it's been a bit of a slump. What is your low? This could have been my low. I feel like I'm also in a bit of a reading rut. However, my more pressing concern is we are currently in the middle of a heat wave in New York City. It is so hot here. We're recording this in advance because Olivia is traveling. So we're on day two of this heat wave and my apartment is already so hot. And I I said to myself earlier this year, so last summer I replaced the window AC in my living room with like a new one and it made such a difference. And the one in my bedroom still sucks. And I said to myself this year, I needed to replace it. But because I don't know what's going on with my apartment still and if it's going to sell, I was like, oh, like I don't want to buy anything for the apartment. And now on day two of this heat wave, I have a lot of regrets. I don't know how people live without air conditioning. Do you have central air in your apartment? No, we do not. Okay. We don't have any on the first floor. Second floor, we have two units. Third floor, we have one. That's bold. You have no units on the floor that has your kitchen. Oh, yes, it is. I don't turn that oven on. That's why I'm so grateful for an air fryer because, Mm. oh, gosh, it's but it's really insulated because Mm. it's a row home. Anyway, I'm currently in Florida, and so I feel like I can relate to the absolute agony of heat. There's nothing worse. I'm just like covered in sweat right now for our listeners if you want to picture me. I am too. Just shiny as I'll get out. Yeah, but you're wearing a sweatshirt, which is a poor choice, and I don't know why you're doing that. It's either this or no top, so this is what you're getting. Okay. (laughs) Well, on that note, let's take an ad break. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. At the beginning of every month, I sit down and I set goals for the four weeks ahead of me. I go over work projects, travel dates, and the goals I want to accomplish during that specific time period. I also try to identify things that are going to stress me out and I figure out how I'm going to deal with them. For example, if I know I'm going to have a stressful month, I know I need to prioritize taking care of my mental health by doing things that make me feel my best. Things like exercise, morning reading, therapy, This is something that you can do so easily in your own life with BetterHelp. 
No matter how stressful or chaotic our lives are, one fact remains constant. If we don't take care of ourselves, we're not going to feel our best. Most of us know this includes taking care of our physical health, but what about our mental health? BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. In other words, it's a stress-free way to finally figure out how to take care of your brain regularly. Therapy can seem intimidating or intense, but honestly, how I think of it is it's just a way to make time for myself each and every week, no matter what I have going on. It feels as much a part of my self-care as regular exercise or making sure I'm drinking water and staying hydrated. If the idea of having dedicated time to focus on yourself regularly sounds good to you, try booking a session with a therapist on BetterHelp today. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash badonpaper. Christina Ariola is the Senior Marketing Manager at Sourcebooks Landmark, where she oversees the marketing and publicity for commercial fiction titles. She is formerly the Senior Books Editor at Bustle, and her book recommendations have appeared in Elle, Vogue, The Wall Street Journal, Latina Magazine, and more. And we also have Ashley Winstead with us, who is the author of thrillers In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, and the forthcoming The Last Housewife, which comes out in August, as well as the romance novel Fool Me Once. And she holds a PhD in contemporary American literature and a BA in English and art history. And she lives in Houston, Texas, where she drinks red wine and dreams up novels. What an aspirational bio. I want (laughs) to... Yeah, it's so good. (laughs) Drinking red wine and dreaming up novels sounds like we would be really good friends off the air. Oh, yeah, let's do it. That is that is also, like, just very accurate, my day-to-day. That's just what I get up to. Well, we are so excited to talk to you both because today we are uh, talking about the book launch process, or I guess the lead-up to the launch, too. And so excited to talk all things marketing and publicity. So, Christina, let's start with you. When someone asks you what your job is, what's your elevator pitch? I feel like my job is really simple to explain. My job is to sell books. I don't know how it works at every publisher, but at Sourcebooks, we're really collaborative. So I will note that everything is done in collaboration with a lot of other people. But basically, my job is to package the book into something that will sell, to make people aware of the book in the hopes that they buy this book through whatever means necessary, and to a certain extent to assist in author branding insofar as the publisher is able to help with that. And that sort of is just the broad view. So there's obviously a lot of things that follow underneath that, including influencers, social media, advertising, design, consumer book clubs, Goodreads. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the specifics of that. But at the end of the day, my job is to sell books. (laughs) And at what point in the book publishing process do you come in? Is it like when it's just ready to be sold? Is it when it's in stores? Is it far before that? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So I think people, I think a lot of authors are surprised actually by how early marketing is part of the process. So I imagine it varies from publisher to publisher, but at Sourcebooks, it begins pretty much immediately. It is actually not uncommon for me to give feedback on acquisitions. Um, So I try not to approach that from an editorial perspective, right? Like I'm not here to say, 
this book has a huge plot hole or I hated this character. Like I sort of trust that the editor is making the, the best decision for their list and also, you know, will smooth over anything that I, you know, personally don't like or whatever. I'm more there to say, you know, I think this would be great as a hardcover. I think this would be great as a trade paperback to give feedback on what some of the potential comps would be to sort of give some early direction on what the cover would look like and what the positioning would look like. Or just to sort of offer more broad guidance on what we see as the opportunity for the book. So a lot of times um, editors will ask, like, do you think that this has big book potential? And that's always sort of a tricky question to get (laughs) um, because, you know, obviously I'm seeing something in not its final state. And um, so I just sort of have to really trust that my instincts about things are correct and try to offer the best possible guidance that I can from a marketing perspective. But I would say that in the cases in which I don't come in on acquisitions, it begins really early in ways that I I think that is not even really obvious to authors or outsiders. So for example, last week, my boss and I went over the entire list for fall 2023. So over a year from now, just to make sure that we had all of the books in the right places, to make sure that they're publishing in the months where we think they have the best opportunities, to make sure that we are not publishing too many books in one month, to make sure that they're spread out appropriately. And we did this for September 2023 all the way through March 2024. And so these are books that are often still in heavy revisions, a lot of books that were only acquired in like the last week, and we're already sort of like making decisions on where these need to be published. And like I said, everything is done in collaboration with other people. And so this is something that is definitely done hand in hand with editorial. Um, And we just kind of come in and offer the marketing feedback on why we think that, you know, these months are the best places for it. And then after that, I would say the next time that marketing really gets involved in a big way is probably the cover. (laughs) And I imagine that we will have a whole discussion about covers. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I have so many questions about how a cover is chosen. But yes, we will get to that later. But before we get into any of the nitty gritty, I understand from our emails that Sourcebooks does things a little bit differently than some of the big five publishers. And you actually work on both marketing and publicity, which is not how it would work somewhere else. But I'm not even sure that we understand the difference. Can you tell us what the difference between those two things are and how it would work somewhere other than Sourcebooks? Yeah, totally. So Sourcebooks is a smaller company. We have under 200 people. Um, We're a mid-sized publisher. And so we sort of, well, this was decided before I joined, but I say we, decided that they really just thought that the best way to move forward for our particular list, since we do have a smaller list, was just for marketing publicity to be really intertwined. And that way we could sort of say, you know, this book isn't quite getting the publicity I want it to. So I'm really going to push harder on the marketing levers and or back and forth and just really gives you a cohesive view of, of the campaigns. So I do do both. But like I said, I have a smaller list. So I'm not like stretched super thin the way that, you know, I, I might be at somewhere else. And in terms of the difference between marketing and publicity, publicity really is about securing media. And so obviously, you really hope that that media will lead to sales. But that is the primary objective of publicity. And there are other things that are involved in the publicity process, like events, sometimes influencers fall under publicity, festivals, that kind of a thing. 
And then marketing is sort of everything else. So advertisements, Goodreads, consumer book clubs, just any other lever that could possibly convince somebody to buy a book or just to raise awareness of a book. So sometimes people simplify it to say that sort of like marketing is everything that involves payment, so like ads and stuff like that. I think that's a little bit of a simplification because we do a lot of things in the marketing end of things that do not involve payment. But I would say that anything that isn't explicitly media usually falls under marketing. That was really helpful to to kind of get our arms around what we're talking about. Yes. And how does a publishing house decide exactly how much marketing support they're going to give a book? Like, obviously, it's different for every book, but how are those choices made? I don't know. I I mean, I don't know how it works other places. I don't want to say like too much about the way that we classify Mm -hmm. things at Sourcebooks. I will say that we have different marketing styles. And so I would say that it's not that we give more marketing attention to any one book, but it just might be concentrated in different places. So for example, we publish a lot of historical fiction. And these are sort of the books that get made fun of on Twitter because they all have images of women walking away on the cover. And, you know, it's sort of like a continual um, joke in some sections of book Twitter. But the reality is that those covers sell really well at the places where people are buying those books. And so for me, it's so much more important for that book to have the right cover so that it can get sold into Walmart or get put on the Barnes & Noble historical fiction table or go into Target as a trade paperback and just sell a ton of copies. Like that is marketing as much as, you know, running ads or anything else. And so I wouldn't say that we decide so much that like something is going to get more marketing push than anything else so much as we sort of make a decision on what the right levers are for each books. Obviously, every publisher has their priority titles and it sort of is a decision that comes from everyone. It's not made by any one person. It's sales and editorial and marketing and publicity aligning on what they think are the books that just have the full package. And and I would say that sometimes those books are really surprising. And sometimes in the course of the, you know, marketing and publicity launch cycle, we will find ourselves very surprised by books that are overperforming our own expectations and we'll shift resources. And so it's not really um, a set decision that is made and held to um, no matter what happens. So it's kind of fluid based on what's happening, what's performing, what's trending maybe. Yeah, definitely. I think that it, you know, it depends a lot on what is trending in the space, on what we're seeing, you know, other publishers have success with, but I, I don't at least at source books it's not as simple as saying like these three books are going to get all of this money and then everyone else is going to get nothing. Like it just it just doesn't work that way. And I know that the author also has their own role in in marketing their book. So Ashley, can you kind of tell us in your experience, like what does the publishing house do versus what is the author responsible for in in promoting a book? Yeah. And I just have to say, I love learning from Christina. She's such a rock star. And it's so, it's so interesting to hear um, her take and then think about all of the the things that us authors are thinking about on, you know, and, and often don't know and speculating about, you know, from our end. So 
I think, you know, it varies book to book and person to person, but, you know, I would say the author, to my great relief, isn't responsible for a ton. Like, and I'm, I'm trying to say here that, like, you shouldn't feel a lot of weight as an author um, uh, or like con- the conviction that anything that you do with whatever platforms you have is going to move the needle. So where I kind of intersect with our PR and marketing plans is just um, kind of amplifying the news announcements, campaigns that Sourcebooks comes up with and dreams up, um, obviously being a collaborative partner in the entire process, um, like when it comes to covers and messaging, co- even back cover copy. So on the back end, I, I'm very grateful that my voice is included and given so much consideration like on every aspect of the book. But when it comes to like the public facing stuff, um, you know, it's it's mostly just amplifying what Sourcebooks is doing. Um, and yeah, just kind of like with my own personal spin as the author. Um, and one thing that authors talk about a lot is feeling like the entire weight of PR and marketing your book is on your shoulders. And it doesn't matter what kind of support you have from your publisher. I think especially if you're a new author, you feel like if you don't post a certain way or post enough or do come up with pre-order, a pre-order campaign or whatever it is that like you're not giving your book its best chance. And I have learned the hard way that literally it does not, nothing you can do is going to move the needle as much as what Christina does and the publishing team. I imagine that does sort of feel like a lot of pressure, but you mentioned like cover and like the jacket copy and all of that how does that you you mentioned it was collaborative how does that work exactly like do you say i have a vision they create something and then you're like i don't know or is it more like they bring you something and how do, how does that all work yeah i'm in the unique position of publishing books with two different publishers and so the um, process has been pretty different um at, to speak to source books for the two books that I've published with them so far, everything's uh, mostly routed through my editor, even though it's coming you know, from, from the various teams who are doing it. They've sent me the cover and then conversation and negotiation starts there. Um, and it is very collaborative. And I just love what I think is a very uh, productive tension uh, between the author and their publishing team. Like Christina was speaking to the need to have historical fiction books look a certain way because she's got her mind focused on what's gonna sell. And as an author, at least speaking for myself, you know, the same is true. There's like certain tropes for thriller covers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am sitting here in my room wanting my, you know, cover to look really different and unique. And, you know, do all these things that are important to me. And so the tension of, of like that, me pushing in that direction versus the team pulling me back to what they think is going to sell and, and where that meets in the middle for both of my covers with Sourcebooks has just been like an absolutely gorgeous place that I'm very grateful for. Like my, my covers are just phenomenal. They're so good. <laughs> They're some of my favorite. I mean, I love your books and I talk about them all the time on here. So I'm fangirling a little bit, but the covers 
are beautiful. Both of them are like, and I can't take credit for that, obviously, because that's someone else's art, which is amazing. But it was the result of push pull conversations and, um, yeah, landing, landing in a marketable yet, you know, unique place. Yeah. And I do feel like you can take credit a little bit for The Last Housewife. (laughs) Both of Ash, Productive Tension is such a charitable way of putting it because both cover processes for In My Dreams and I Hold a Knife and The Last Housewife were extremely challenging. I see every cover concepts and, and offer feedback and my boss does and sales does and everyone does. And it kind of is a toss up what will get heard by design and what will not. And they're working very hard. And I know that they're dealing with like seven different people telling them like all different manners of things. And sometimes it just gets really confusing. And I know with The Last Housewife, we were just not getting concepts that felt right for the book. And I felt really strongly that we were not getting concepts that were right for Ashley because I just feel so strongly that she's such this fresh voice in the thriller space. And In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife was such an iconic cover. And I wanted her to have another iconic cover. And so I, I, I went into design and I basically said, you know, here's what's going on in the thriller space. I had a presentation, I just, a PowerPoint that I put together. And, and I was like, I think that this is where we need to move towards in our new concepts. I and mean, it was after that that we got the concept that ended up being the cover, but it wasn't exactly the same. And one of the things that Ashley actually said was, so the hands, you know, the cover has these these hands that are threading a needle. And in the original concept, I can't actually remember what color they were. I think maybe the cover was kind of like a pink color and the hands were purple, like the purple that is the background. And Ashley said, what if we made it ombre? And I don't know actually if you meant that we meant like make the background ombre, I think is what you meant. But when it came in from the designer, the hands were ombre. And it was just so cool. Like I saw it and immediately I was like, this is like both perfectly on trends, but also just like completely subversive and looks so different from any other thriller cover right now. And that was Ashley completely. I don't know that I would have made that suggestion. And so it is really nice to be able to collaborate with the author in that way. That so example. lovely to hear. Yeah. <laughs> because you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, like it's Christina said earlier about trusting your instincts and how so much of this work and this industry that we're in is falls to that. Um, and covers are one of those things, especially as an author where you're like, okay, um, a, do I trust my own instincts that this needs to be a little bit different? And I think with the housewife cover, there was actually another cover sample that I had gotten that had an ombre thing going on. And I thought, what if we took that and put these two things together? Uh, which was my like attempt to be really conciliatory. <laughs> I'm like, look, we already have it. We can put these things together. But it's also, it's nerve wracking from the author's perspective because you love your team, you love your publisher. Um, you don't want to ever be a hassle or like make more work for people. So it's like kind of a delicate thing to negotiate. And I'm very grateful that I have Christina like um, in my corner. And then another big part of the package, I don't know who I'm asking this to, so I'll I'll let you negotiate this between yourselves. (laughs) Another big 
part of the package is blurbs. Can you walk us through that process and like who does what there? Like, Ashley, is that you going out to authors you know, or is it the publisher going out on your behalf? Like, how does that work? And I'm also just curious how much blurbs matter. Sure. So blurbs, as listeners may or may not know, are those like little paragraphs or lines. They keep, uh, they're trending shorter as time goes on, I've noticed. (laughs) So paragraphs or lines of endorsements from peers in your field that essentially, you know, do a lot of things. They kind of tell readers what kind of book they're going to pick up. And they also act as a kind of like, here's a thumbs up from writers you trust. So, you know, you can probably trust that this might be a book you like. So I think the strategy with blurbs is a combination of looking for authors whose work you genuinely love and admire. So that plus, you know, writers who are writing books that are similar to yours also helps. And then of course, there's a star power that you just, you can't ignore that factor. If there's a big name who's who has a lot of fans having that person's name on your cover is gonna attract some attention so with all of those things you um you know taking into consideration the process from the author and editor standpoint is my editor and i put together an excel spreadsheet of just a ton of names and it's it mostly falls on the author at least it has in my all of my experiences um and then you go through and you talk about the names and you you know your editor will have insight like, you know, I've reached out to this person seven times in the last two years and they've never responded to an email. So maybe, maybe that not that person or uh, conversely, this person is known to be so kind and generous with their time, especially to up and coming authors. Um, So they would be a really good person to reach out to. Once you have that final list, it usually is the author who's reaching out and is there like a database of emails or are you just like going on the <laughs> yeah, internet like, oh my God. being like it is Riley Sager so... email address? <laughs> it's maddening. I wish there was the way there are like databases for agents, but you really have to go author by author, research the, he- like stalk them kind of, um, <laughs> and like figure out if, if they're website says like for blurbs contact my agent but there's no agent listed so you're like okay publishers marketing marketplace you know gonna figure out who they're repped by oh that that's their old agent it hasn't been updated it's you know it's it's a wild ride but you do your best to find their contact info and in some cases your editor will have the information the thing i like about blurbs as terrifying as blurbs are because you're essentially like cold calling the people you admire most in your field to ask them to do you an enormous favor. Um, And it does feel like asking someone out on a date or to prom or something like that. I like the fact that it gives you an opportunity to just gush about someone that you, whose work you really enjoy. So even if the blurb doesn't work out, you've told someone how much you enjoy their work and you have a little bit of a relationship started. Um, So yeah, blurbs are, I'll I'll actually turn to Christina to talk about how much of an impact blurbs have. Yeah, this is another recurring book Twitter conversation is the importance of blurbs. And I would say that I think that they do a lot of good. I am very sympathetic to authors for having to get blurbs and very grateful that that's not part of my job. But I think that, like Ashley said, they really position the book's for readers. They are part of that package in terms of if you see on the cover that there is a Riley Sager 
and a Liv Constantine blurb, like there was on In My Dreams I Hold a Knife, and an Andrea Bard's blurb that sort of immediately places the book into a specific category of thrillers for you. And so I think that they're really useful for that purpose. They're also very useful for advertisements. We can run ads, we can try to target fans of those readers. They're useful for Goodreads marketing because we can kind of go back and use those blurbs and use those in targeted mailers to their audiences with the permission of those blurb partners. Um, they're useful on BookBub, which is a whole other thing that isn't, you know, quite as much of a, a factor for, uh, I would say, non-romance authors, but very useful there as well. And then also there, you kind of forge a connection with those authors for the course of the campaign. And I know, especially in virtual times when we were just doing tons of virtual events for every book release, it was sort of like, okay, well, we have all these 12 blurb uh, partners um, let's start there when it comes to searching for conversation partners for this virtual tour that you're going on. So there's unlimited ways that verbs can and are used. But like Ashley says, I think that it's really just about sort of getting those endorsements from authors that readers already trust. So I want to get a little more specific here. So every book has a cover, every book has flap copy, every book has blurbs. But I'm curious... Um, Ashley speaking specifically to In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife because that was your debut and we're talking to kind of like first time uh, authors here or in a lot of cases also just readers. Um, Can you walk us through like what were the key components of the marketing and publicity plan for that book, which came out last year, right? Did, yeah. Um, Wild that it hasn't even been a full year. (laughs) Um, so it's crazy. crazy. I know it's so crazy. Um, dreams is unique because I think, um, it it was a dark academic book being published at a time when there was a huge interest in that subgenre of thrillers. So I think what we did that was really smart was lean into that and really play up those aspects. So all the assets that were created for dreams, you know, really focus like the videos and the the visuals and all that really leaned into like um, the the campus aesthetic. And I got a lot of publicity like, um, I was able to write a lot of articles and and think pieces, taking a dark act like that dark academic campus angle, um, and so that was also a comfort spot for me because I had just um, come out of like spending ten years in academia between you know most being a student. Um, and so I was like, I, I've got that on lock. I can talk about uh, <laughs> campus culture and, and what that's like. So I think something that was just like really brilliant and contributed to Dream's pickup was that we really leaned into that, um, that trend. And then um, another thing is just that the Bookstagram community, what I feel was just a huge part of Dream's word of mouth. Um, in ways that I never expected, certainly didn't count on by any means, um, and I'm very grateful for. I am like looking to Christina to explain how that happened because I don't know. <laughs> all I knew, all I know, is that all of a sudden my book was blowing up, and I was getting tagged in, you know, fifty posts a day for a few weeks after the book or something, you know, something wild like that. And 
yeah so I'll look at, at Christina for that no even still I feel like in my dreams it's all over bookstagram I feel yeah. that way too echoing it is yeah yeah I think that when you when you start a campaign you sort of think about like I said, what the opportunity for that book is. And when I read this book, I was like, this book feels like a very satisfying adult CW show. And Bookstagram is just going to love it. Like, I just knew it. I was like, this is a Bookstagram book. So I really made that a priority from day one to really make sure that influencers were getting very early copies and to make sure that we were targeting really high profile influencers very early on. And so we were lucky to have some really big people in the crime fiction community. I'm thinking, you know, about people like Abby Endler of Crime by the Book get on board really early and really enthusiastically, I think is what was the key is that all of the reviews that we were getting in were just completely effusive and they were just sort of like building on each other. And people's excitement was just, I mean, it was just all growing for months before it published. And we did do a lot to fan those flames. So we did a paid bookstagram tour, both with advanced reading copies and with finished copies. And that was in addition to our organic influencer outreach that we were doing. And so there was definitely a lot of copies on bookstagram pre-pub. And that's always a little bit of a risk because I'm always like so torn over how many copies I want to send out for free because at the end of the day, my job is to sell books, not to, you know, give a review copy to every single person on Instagram. But I think in this case, it was a risk that really paid off because the excitement just started to build really quickly. And then, it, you know, another risk that you take when you send out so many copies is that people will post it, but they won't necessarily read it and they won't review it. But because the early reviews were so effusive, people were really excited to read it. And so all of those copies that we were sending out were getting read and reviewed and shared. And it was just building and building and building and continued to build after pub and then continued to build even still to the paperback and beyond. Um, and when the paperback came out, which was in April, was sort of very conveniently timed as like a halfway point in between In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife coming out and The Last Housewife coming out. And then we were able to do another round of influencer marketing, Goodreads marketing, ads that could continue to fan the flames of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife while also building buzz for The Last Housewife. And so all those paperbacks go out with back ads for the new book. The ebook gets updated with back ads for The Last Housewife. And I really feel that having that strong paperback campaign is a part of The Last Housewife campaign because we are, at the end of the day, just trying to create more Ashley Winstead vans. And I think that the thing is, is that when you read In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, you immediately want to read more Ashley Winstead. I know that is certainly true of Olivia. <laughs> yes, it is very true. I, I've read both of your books in the past six months, actually. And then I started following you and I love following you on Instagram. But I'm curious, Ashley, did you have a platform before you published your first book? Or is that something that's built over time? No, I'm I'm like laughing to myself because I can still remember the day Christina said, so your cover reveal is going to be on Instagram. And, you know, this wonderful influencer is going to share it. And I was like, oh, I guess I should have one. And or, like, you didn't that, even have an Instagram. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And that was like literally a year ago or, you know, a little less, but I was completely unaware. I knew nothing about bookstagram. I knew nothing about the community. And so, yeah, I have built 
the platform and since last summer. Um, and I now I'm fully in love with, you know, like Instagram and bookstagram and probably spend way too much time there. But one of the things that was really important for me, just as like, not, not as a marketing thing or, you know, a PR thing, but just, I don't know, my upbringing or something, I felt like a, a really strong compulsion to thank every single person who posts about my book. Um, and so I have still stick to that, but it takes a little more time now, but I'm like determined to do that. And I think through engagement, I've built some really great relationships with bookstagrammers. And that has just been both personally and professionally, like a very great joy of the last year, like a gift. So I am. Um, I love how you like repost when people tag you because it's introduced me to so many cool bookstagrammers that way as well. So it's uh, it's been awesome. But Christina, I'm curious, how important do you think a platform is? I know this is kind of like a question where I hear a lot of people say, you don't need one, but I don't know. I mean, it does really help. But what's your take on that? I don't think you need one. I mean, I also very specifically remember early in Ashley's campaign where I emailed her and I was like, hey, are you interested in having people tag you on Instagram? And she was like, yeah, I think so. And I was like, okay, then you should like change your handle to something that people can find. I was like, can you change it to Ashley Winstead books or like Ashley Winstead author? Um, she, yeah, she was definitely like not on her radar. And I would say for most authors, it really isn't. They use Instagram personally, but not professionally. For I mean, I really, I really truly don't think it matters. I think what matters is, you know, your comfort level with social media. If that's something that you don't want to do, then I by no means think it's necessary. I think if it is something that you want to do, I think people like Ashley have laid such a phenomenal groundwork. I actually will sometimes tell other authors who are looking for insight. I'm like, you should follow Ashley Winstead because she's doing such a good job. And I feel like the the best way to to engage in social media is to be really authentic. And I think it's so much worse if it feels forced, if you're just like there because you feel like you have to be or your publisher wants you to be. And at that point, it's just kind of counterproductive. Like it's, yeah. it's best when you're creating community and having fun and taking breaks when you need them from social media, because I'm sure it is very exhausting to be promoting your work 24-7. I really don't think it matters. I mean, obviously, if you already have an existing platform, then that's something that we will take into account in the marketing and we will certainly try to leverage as much as possible. But it just, it, I really just don't think it matters if you don't. And Ashley, for you, your second book was a rom-com. So it was in a different genre altogether. Did you feel like there was a different playbook for, you know, launching a book in a different genre or was it broadly similar? Broadly similar. So I, um, now after, I guess, three going through, like, reviewing three marketing campaigns or like, you know, being walked through three, three marketing and PR campaigns for books. I think the, the, between the genres has been very similar. Like you're still looking to find your influencers. Those are going to be different people in the romance community, but you're still looking for opportunities to, you know, PR. It all is pretty much roughly the same. The thing to me that has made some plans stand out versus others is the amount of tailoring to your book. Because there are, 
things that you are going to find probably in every PR and marketing plan of a certain like caliber. And Christina, correct me if I'm wrong, because right now I'm just speaking purely as like an author who has seen three PR and marketing plans. So <laughs> you, you can totally correct me, but um, there are elements that are just, you're going to have a team trying to place you, your book in the pop sugar lists and the, you know, upcoming book list. Most, you know, you're going to have the book sent out to um, influencers ahead of time. So all of that's going to look roughly the same. I think what makes a really big difference um, is like, if your PR and marketing team really gets your book, gets how to position it, gets the unique parts of it that should be pushed or played up um, versus, you know, a little bit more um, color by the numbers or um, sort of marketing plan that really you could insert any book in that plan and it wouldn't change. So I think that to me, this is me, you know, I hope this isn't a salty opinion or like, um, or anything. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the amount of tailoring makes a really big difference. I think that's really, it's really valuable for me to hear. And I, I would say that also, you know, as a marketer, one thing that I try to do is really stay close to the campaign and stay close to the reviews, because I think that you can learn a lot that will maybe prove to be a really interesting opportunity. So one of the things that happened with In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, that was not really something that was obvious to me right away, was how much people loved the romance in that book and how that sort of became like, I mean, that's the only thing that me and my dreams, I hold the knife readers on TikTok really talk about. They're like, uh, you know, I love the romance in this book. And I think that that was something that did not occur to me until after it came out where I was like, okay, like we need to be pushing that angle more. And we did, you know, uh, you know, in some subtle ways where we kind of like changed the metadata around where we were pushing to different audiences and our ads and that kind of a thing. Um, but also sometimes a little bit more explicit as well. And so I think that, um, just to kind of add on to what Ashley was saying is I think you really need to um, really understand the books that you're working on um, and be okay with, with sometimes being wrong and having to change course or, or add to the course or whatever it is to do what is best for the book. The ability to pivot is huge. And we actually did that with my romance as well. After reviews, we saw that people really didn't like the cheating element in that romance, but really liked the humor. And so we started like really playing up that aspect of it in, in all of our materials. So yeah, it's just, it's really nice to have that ability to kind of like be so nimble in, in your plan. So does this mean you've, you've published three books in how much time? <laughs> in a year and a half. <laughs> oh my God. And all during the pandemic. So I'm going to assume that you didn't do any book tours or did you do virtual tours? I did. I've done virtual tours, um, which I love. Like I'm, I'm all about the virtual tour. I can be, you know, wearing sweatpants on the bottom half. Always a a plus. Yes, huge plus. (laughs) I can have my wine, you know, it's, it's great. And I think, you know, more importantly, I've gotten the chance to be in conversation with so many authors. I never would have had the chance to 
talk to probably just because we're all scattered around the the ends of the earth so now that we're moving into physical tour mode for the last housewife which is very exciting you you know you're thinking to yourself who do i know in like <laughs> in iowa or what whatever it is so that's that's a whole different ball game christina i'm curious if you feel like covid changed like will tours come back in the same way or do you think that now that people are used to virtual events it'll stay virtual like what's your prediction uh no i think that events are going to come back um we just completed basically our first full in-person tour post-pandemic which was julie clark's tour and she wrote the lies i tell on the last flight and she just got back from tour and i think we felt that it was you know pretty successful i think that right now it still is a little bit weird like with new variants and everything. And I think it will take a while for things to get back to pre-pandemic levels. But I think that people are ready to get their books signed and to meet their favorite author in person. One thing that I, that I do think the pandemic has permanently changed is just that now that we are all so good at Zoom, like, do you remember in March 2020, when people were like, oh, we're going to use Zoom. And you were like, what the hell is Zoom? Like, I had never heard of Zoom in my life before March 2020. And now it's like, everyone knows how to use Zoom. So obviously, like, why wouldn't we use it in some circumstances? And so I think that virtual events are definitely going to stick around and will be available to people who aren't going to be in one of the tour cities. And so I really love the idea of that happening. But I think that there will be a lot fewer virtual events than there have been in the last couple of years. Um, And I do think that it will take a little while longer for in-person events to get quite at the level of where they were. That being said, it's always so useful for authors to visit bookstores in person because, you know, even if they they're not selling like 200 books uh, at every stop, but they're still meeting booksellers and um, those booksellers will go on to hand sell copies or, you know, just become, you know, fans of the authors. And so it's always worth it, in my opinion. Yeah, I know bookstores, the, the ones I've talked to have just been like so grateful that in-person book events are coming back and there's a real desire for it. And I say that as someone who's very nervous that I'm going to go out into bookstores and no one's going to come to my book events, um, where at least virtually I can be like, mom, you have to show up. Like I need at least <laughs> one person in this Zoom room. But yeah, we'll see. Riley Sager at his book event recently shared that his first tour was like three people came to each of his book signings. So that I was like, okay, if that happened for him, he's okay now. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there's lots of listeners who would love to go. (laughs) And also me, like I'll be there. (laughs) Christina, so one thing I really am curious about is uh, the importance of book clubs, especially like the Reese's Good Morning America, all of that book club picks. How does this process work? Like, I I have this impression that it's some mysterious thing and it seems very important, but I'm not sure how to gauge that importance. Tell us, tell us your perspective on that. It, well, it's not that mysterious. So for the big three book clubs, Reese's Book Club and Good Morning America and Read With Jenna, we actually meet with the producers. And in the case of Reese Witherspoon, she has a scout. And we meet with them a couple times a year and we just present our titles, our priority titles that we think are good fits for their clubs to them. 
And then they, you know, they'll request copies for review that they're interested in. It sort of is a long drawn out process where you're talking to them for a long time. And then they're like, oh, this is on the short list, but we want to move it to this month and back and forth. And then, you know, it's it's very much a drawn out process that lasts for many, many months. And we pitch them very early. Um, so almost as close to a year in advance. So because they are reading so far in advance and also because for the most part, the books have to be selected before the books go to print because you need to have those GMA or Reese Witherspoon stickers on them. And those are printed on. Am I hearing you say that you'll actually move release dates to to accommodate? Oh, yeah, 100%. Because obviously, it's a huge opportunity for the book. And unless there is a very compelling reason why we need a book to publish in like October instead of November, there's just absolutely no reason to change it to not change it. The only situation which I can imagine in which that would be a problem is just because of the supply chain challenges. If they wanted to move it up, then that would potentially be a huge problem because you wouldn't be able to get the books printed in time. But yeah, I think that if Reese comes to you and says, I want this book. You just say, when do you want it? That's actually my favorite trick for figuring out picks. Because when I'll see a book gets bumped, I'm like, okay. Oh. Yeah, because you also have to bump. So their pub date, say their book is coming out August 16th. All of a sudden, their pub date is August 2nd because they have to release it at the beginning of the month for it to be the book club pick um this is all that's also i love doing that like going through and seeing which books are publishing the first tuesday of the month or sometimes like the last tuesday of the previous month you can always figure it out that's your pool oh man we just found a new game yeah oh my gosh that's i love that it's like so it's like a secret yeah and especially because you guys are getting pitches as well like just look out for pitches where they're like oh we're so excited to publish this we moved it to and it's like two weeks forward (laughs) you're like interesting oh gosh so it is a little bit mysterious see (laughs) (laughs) what about marketing to libraries and indies is that the marketing team or is that the sales team so that is the marketing team at sourcebooks and i want to say it the majority of publishers, there are separate teams that deal with library and indie bookseller marketing, and that's totally their specialty. I think it's a really important part of the campaign. So there are, are two big lists that are decided by indie booksellers and librarians. So every month, indie booksellers decide on the Indie Next list, which is their list of the favorite books that are coming out that month. And in order to get on the Indie Next list, you have to have a certain number of blurbs from indie booksellers throughout the country. And it kind of changes. Like, it's not like you get 20 blurbs, you're on the list. It's like, do you have more blurbs than, you know, the person underneath you? And it's the same thing for Library Reads, which is the top 10 books is decided by librarians. And so for Ashley, we really recognized after In My Dreams I Hold a Knife that librarians are just huge fans of Ashley Winstead. So we actually ended up getting a ton of Library Reads nominations for In My Dreams I Hold a Knife after the library reads had closed for August 2021, which um, is obviously disappointing, but also really exciting because we had all these librarians who we knew loved Ashley Winstead. So Ashley, this time around, was kind enough to shoot, I want to say, 27 individual videos. 35. 35 individual videos addressed to all 35 of the librarians who nominated her for library reads for In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife. She made a video for every single one and it worked. So she is one of the top 10 books as voted on by librarians for for August. 
I'm was so happy. So it's like such a huge honor. Plus, like there, I don't know. I'm a library kid through and through. So, um, grew up in library. So this is like a very cool surreal moment. Plus, shout out like to Emily on the library team, Sourcebooks, who I mean, I just she championed the Last Housewife and. I had a lot of cool opportunities. Like I got to take over the Sourcebooks Librarian newsletter and write my own version of it. There was just a lot of cool stuff. Let's talk for a second about something that I'm scared to get into, but also very curious about book talk. Uh, <laughs> are you on book talk, Ashley? I, I don't, how does that, it'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll start there. I have a, I have a handle, but I am not on it. And the thing that I've heard over and over again is that it does not matter if I'm on it or not, because it's not really about me and my personality. You know, it's book talk is more about the the trusted reader community and whether or not your book is being picked up by them and, you know, championed. So there's like very little that I can do with, with my voice to kind of like make uh, any of my books go viral, which is actually to me a relief because I just, I like that. But I know that it's become a place that publishers are looking more. And I've been to a few training camps on book talk mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. And how, how to like position your book well for book talks. I'll turn over to Christina. Yeah. Christina, what's the feeling internally at publishing houses? Is book talk something that you can like leverage or is it kind of its own magical viral thing that just happens regardless of regardless of the publishing house? I think this is a subject of a lot of debate. I actually was at a <laughs> book talk webinar last night with, you know, people from BookScan, which is like the organization that tracks book sales and Barnes and Noble and um, some publishing houses. And they were talking about that and and kind of to Ashley's point, they were saying how it's not really important for the authors to be on there. And TikTok really rewards authenticity. It doesn't want things to feel forced. It's very hard to get sponsored posts perform well on TikTok, which is very disappointing because you obviously want to be able to manufacture that virality. But I think that that's something that everyone is still trying to figure out if they can do because it is always just so completely random what books get picked up unless it is like the new book from Colleen Hoover or Taylor <laughs> Jenkins read or something where it's like, yes, obviously that's going to go viral on book talk. So we have been doing a lot with sponsored posts. I mean, I'm in the wrong business. I should be making TikTok posts. These Gen Zers <laughs> are making so much money on these posts. <laughs> it's like on my list of things to do today to download TikTok. Finally, I've resisted for so long, but like I need a TikTok boot camp that's just like for a normal person trying to survive on the internet. <laughs> I finally got TikTok to serve me book talk because for whatever reasons it was like serving me all different corners of TikTok, but not book talk. And I was like, how do I get this? Like I hear so much about this, but you're not giving me this content, even though I follow book talk people. And I finally got it. And my my main I don't know if I've been like mainstream book talk or like some fringe, but like my main takeaway has just been how samey the recommendations are. Like I'm like, who else is left to buy Verity? Like every (laughs) book talk, like TikTok is a great question. Apparently a lot. I mean, 
it's crazy how many copies Colleen Hoover is selling per week. It like really boggles the mind. I, I would love to take a look at her royalty statement. I heard it was, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm supposed to know this or say this out loud, but like I heard it's 60 to 70,000 copies a week. Sounds right. I a mean, for, probably uh, for like one book. Yeah, yeah, for Verity specifically. Yeah, it, it, it's, I have seen the numbers and it is truly wild. But, you know, so I was in this webinar last night and there was a book talker on there. And one thing that she said that was really interesting was she has an Instagram account and she has a TikTok account. They have the same follower account. But she said that TikTok is where the buyers are, that when she posts about something that she loves, she's so much more likely to see an actual effect on her commissions or on her affiliate links or whatever on TikTok than she is on Instagram, which I think is, you know, obviously I love that. Like, obviously, every publisher is going to try to capitalize that on that as much as possible. Um, But I think that, you know, for now, we really are still focusing on trying to identify good influencers for paid content and also just focusing on getting the books into as many TikTokers' hands as possible. I would say that I still find it to be a little bit more difficult with thrillers than with, you know, I feel like the marketers who work on romance or who work on, you know, fantasy romance, that kind of thing seem to be having a little bit of an easier time with it than I am personally finding like it's so funny because if I send out a blast to a bunch of bookstagrammers like hey do you want a copy of this book like 99% of people will respond and be like yes and if you do it to book talk like you will get so many people who are like no I'm not interested in that think so (laughs) keep me in mind like they are just like so willing to be like no it's just that's not for me um it's very humbling they are a lawless bunch Gen Z I know, Gen Z. I respect it a lot, though. And I think that, you know, we are we are doing a lot of different things on TikTok. Within my dreams, I hold a knife, actually. We had an influencer, Sydney Reads. I worked with her on some paid posts, and then I just sort of, like, sent her some thrillers I was working on. I was like, I really love this book. I think you like it. She loved this book, In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, and posted about it organically. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, you posted this really great organic video of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife. Do you mind if we run some Spark ads on it? So basically just running it as a boosted post. And she was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And, I mean, last I checked, that post had, like, 80,000 views and this was probably a couple of months ago and so that was really working out well where we could sort of just leverage organic content and then turn it into paid content Um, and we're trying to do that more and more just because authenticity is so key to the success of BookTok. Yeah I guess that's TikTok in a nutshell right? It's just the most off-the-cuff not planned stuff and then you're viral and making millions of dollars. At least that's my perception. Um So, Ashley, how exactly do you manage, you know, doing all of the promotional commitments along with, you know, writing three books in one? I mean, I know you wrote them over time, but (laughs) publishing three books in a year and a half. Not well. Um, I'll start there. (laughs) Probably not well. I tend to prioritize promotion, I think, um, just because it feels really, really hard to ever say no to any opportunity or anyone who wants to like, you know, be in a conversation no matter what, even if it's just like a quick thing on Instagram. And so that is something that I'm working, actively working on (laughs) is finding that balance. But it does, so putting out three books in about a year, it does feel like I've, I've basically been promoting for a year. And I had a moment like maybe a month ago where I said to my husband, I'm just so tired (laughs) and I can't figure out why. 
I just walk around so tired all the time. And he's like, because you've been staring into your ring light for like one full (laughs) straight year, basically. I was like, yeah, you're right. Okay. But I'm lucky enough that I get to write full time now. So I, I've been able since post post that to find some more balance between the writing and the and whenever my new my new philosophy is to prioritize the work and the writing. So we'll see how that goes. I think that's a good philosophy. The last question I have for you, Ashley, I'm so curious. Do you read reviews of your books? I am so proud to say no longer do I read books. Oh, reviews. okay. Yeah. But you used to. Oh, yeah. I challenge, I like any author who tells you that they have never once looked at a re- their review is a liar. Um, and I will just like, I feel very confident in saying that. Um, when you're a new author, the, you are so hungry for feedback because you work by yourself for a year. And then even when you have this great publisher and they're excited about your work, you still have no idea how this is all going to shake out for you. And so the reviews are the first sign of how this might go. And if your dreams are going to come true or, you know, like come crashing down. And so it is impossible to resist that siren call of Goodreads in the beginning. And so I lasted for probably six months of reading my Goodreads reviews, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Do you remember like a funny mean one? <laughs> yeah. I don't want like a, an actual mean one. <laughs> yeah. Some people are so hilarious. Like they need to be writing books um, if they're not already with their Goodreads reviews. So there was one for dreams that I loved so much that I like straight up cackled when I read. Um, God, I, I don't even want to like, I care so much about this. I want to get it right. Of like this joke landing, this woman was like, "I, I guess this is close to the secret history. If you picked up the secret history from the bottom of a grocery store like aisle, <laughs> um, and I was just like, "Ooh, burn!" But also, I should be so lucky. So thank you. So that was good. Oh, people are dumb. No, it's like things like that are that are funny. I the actually the day I stopped deciding to read Goodreads was when I saw a review that was a really bad review and it was two people who had buddy read and they were going back and forth trading insults about the book and then a little bit about me. And it lasted for this really long thread and they had like hundreds of people commenting on it and it was like it was a surreal moment where I was like, oh, wow, I'm like in these people's lives as an object of derision. And that's very kind of mind boggling for me. And then I thought, okay, I am going to, I, I, Ashley Winstead, like this person am separate from that person who lives in the heads of, and I need to like, make sure that that's separate. And that's the day that I just like walked away and didn't look back. And do you read like, um, I don't know what the right terminology is, but like professional reviews, like if your book is reviewed in like Publisher Weekly, will you read that or like no reviews? Oh, no. Professional reviews. Absolutely. Um, Always read those. And I do read reviews that I get tagged in on Instagram. So um, I like and that's because for the most part, bookstagrammers are pretty great about only tagging you. Like the number of bad reviews I've been tagged in is so minuscule. Um, which I have great respect for people's like code of ethics in, in not doing that. So I feel safe reading a review on, on bookstagram. Yeah. So there are some I do read. You have both been such wonderful guests. 
Is there anything we didn't ask about, about marketing a book that you feel like is important to know? No, I mean, we could talk about book marketing for the next 24 hours. Um, I think that probably the thing that I feel like authors <laughs> latch onto the most in my experience is pre-orders. And I know this has come up in previous episodes. And I feel like Iman, who's another Iman Hadidikia, who's also one of my authors, did a pretty good job of explaining them. But I'm happy to talk about pre-orders. It's that pre-orders count for the first, for like the New York Times bestseller list for the first week. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a simplification. Basically, when you come in for your first week of sales, if you have, so basically you come in and all of the books that you sell in that first week count towards your first week. And then every single book that you sold in the pre-order window. So theoretically, you come in with a year's worth of sales. Obviously, that's like not really how it pans out because people don't really pre-order at the same pace that they would order something that is actually available to them. And so, yes, that is usually your strongest opportunity to hit the New York Times bestseller list. And of course, everyone wants to debut on the New York Times bestseller list. That's, you know, the key to be an instant New York Times bestseller. But that definitely isn't the only time when you can hit the list. I think actually your your last guest, um, Carly Fortune, hit the list in like her third or fourth week of every summer after it wasn't a debut it just continued to build which is really interesting um but more than that is that pre-orders also signify to the publisher that maybe there is more demand for a title than was originally believed to be true especially if they're coming in really early i'm talking about like five to six months in advance of publication and then that sort of becomes a leverage point with accounts that's something that you can say to Barnes and Noble or to Target or to Amazon or to whomever, hey, like we are noticing a huge demand for this title. Like maybe you need to take more copies or maybe you need to consider this for your book club or maybe, you know, this is an author that you need to just have on your radar more than you do right now. Or from our perspective, maybe we need to put more money into this. Maybe we need to be putting more resources. Maybe we need to shift around some things because this book is clearly resonating with people. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing that you could do to support an author is pre-order their book. Is to say, like, put your money where your mouth is and say, I'm going to spend $27 on a book that is not coming out for five months. (laughs) It's a hard ask. It's a hard ask. Yeah. And yeah. I am so yeah. grateful for every person who does it. Um, but it, it, it really, truly does make a difference. I love pre-ordering because then it's like you get a present in the mail that you completely forgot about. Because I don't remember what the date is that the book is coming out. And then all of a sudden I have mail yep. and I'm like, it's a gift for my past self. Yeah, <laughs> That's a great way to put wonderful. it. I think to that to uh, speak to what Christina was saying. So a thing that I didn't know um, before I was a published author was um, it's really important, of course, to have your PR and your marketing campaign doing a great job. But then also the, am I going to say, I hope I say it right, selling, like how many copies of your books uh, retailers actually buy can make a really big difference in your sales and like how widely. So I've actually had the experience of like having really strong PR marketing campaign and like little less strong sell-in. And so that creates like a really unique situation where 
people are hearing buzz about your book, but they can't go out and buy it at their local bookstore. So having all of that happening behind the scenes in tandem and like really strong plans between, because I think Christina, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but those are different teams in charge of like those relationships and with retailers and everything. Yeah. So the, the selling is going to be controlled by sales, obviously with input for marketing. And we try to keep sales really, really updated on everything that's happening for a title. So we send them weekly reports that just have all of the big stuff that's happening for any of our titles. But yeah, to your point, I mean, it, it is really important because especially with supply chain challenges, um, and I would say especially for hardcovers, you may not be able to reprint quickly enough to get them onto the shelves before the demand kind of runs out. But it's sort of a complicated thing because so many retailers don't want hardcovers. <laughs> they want trade paperbacks. And I, I think that that's something that, you know, I, I don't really feel is um, to the detriment of any book because I think that you just get two shots at having really successful campaigns and you're able to set up these beautiful hardcover campaigns and then come back six or seven, eight months later um, with a paperback that builds on all of that and sells really well. But yeah, I mean, unless you are just really a huge author or have a huge amount of buzz or a celebrity book club pick as a hardcover, the sell-in is probably just not going to be as large as it would be for a trade paperback. Yeah, it just blew my mind that not only do you have to woo readers, but <laughs> there's all this wooing happening behind the scenes of like an entire industry. That was that was new to me. Yeah, there's a lot of wooing at every stage <laughs> at of the process. Stage. You both have taught us so much. I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with us. Can you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you on the internet? And Ashley, if you can remind everyone the names of your three books and also tell us when The Last Housewife is coming out so we can pre-order and or order it because this is coming out in August. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Um, so you can find me at ashleywinstead.com. And as I mentioned, ever present on Instagram at Ashley Winstead Books. And my books are In, I, in My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, uh, which was my debut, Fool Me Once, which is my romance, and The Last Housewife, which is coming out August 16th. Christina, can you tell people where to find you on social media or where to find source books? Yeah, you can find Sourcebooks Landmark on Instagram. And my personal Instagram is Tina Mariposa. You're definitely welcome to follow me if you like cat photos. And yeah, definitely pre-order The Last Housewife because it's a very special book. It's great. I loved it. If I wanted to do well. Let's talk about our obsessions. Let's. Okay, tell me your thoughts on this Hulu show that we've talked about a little bit. I'm obsessed with The Bear on Hulu. I don't know what I thought it was going to be about. Maybe animals, not sure. It's not. It is about a family-owned restaurant in Chicago that's like kind of a messy family. And the older brother dies by suicide. This is a trigger warning. His younger brother, who is a fine dining chef, goes back to this restaurant, which is kind of like a sandwich shop, like divey type place, and takes it over and is like trying to make it into a real restaurant. The show is so good. I worked in a restaurant in college, so I feel like it gave me very serious restaurant PTSD, but it is so realistic in how it's done. 
I am also very sexually attracted to the <laughs> man who plays the main character. I've seen a lot of photos of him and I get it. I blew through this show in one night. It's I think it's nine episodes. They're short. I watched it on a Sunday in like one sitting. Just next, 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 next. So obsessed. If you haven't watched it or you thought it was about an actual bear because that's what I thought, I'm obsessed. <laughs> I might download it for an upcoming flight mm. just to see what it's all about. I trust your judgment. What about you? What are you obsessed with? My obsession is, so I'm in Florida visiting Jake's brother, his wife, and their almost two-year-old daughter, so our niece. Her name is Emma, and she is obsessed with dinosaurs, and I am obsessed with her obsession about dinosaurs. She will, like, name Triceratops, like, T-tops and Brontosaurus, and it's very impressive. I don't think... I was going to have her come on and say her favorite dinosaur. She's not even two. I mean, is she a genius? I don't know. I think she's a baby genius. Honestly, I'm just impressed. I'm impressed too. I bought her a National Geographic in the grocery store checkout line. Did you know they're $15? Nope. Did not know that. (laughs) Well, now the two-year-old has a National Geographic copy. So Hope she makes it last. There you go. (laughs) She can't read, so probably will. What about reading? You said you're in a reading rut. Are you reading anything or you're just fully off it? I'm fully off it, but I feel like I have high hopes because I am saving. I have four books, but the two I'm most excited about are Notes on an Execution, which I've heard incredible things about. I read the first chapter. Incredible. And then I'm finally reading Every Summer After. So haven't read anything new, but I have high hopes for those two. Okay. What about you? Um, I'm currently reading... Portraits of a Thief by Grace D. Lee. I am not kidding when I tell you that I am actually taking our summer reading preview episode as my reading Bible right now, and I'm just working my way through what everyone recommended. So this was one of Morgan from NYC Book Girls recommendations. It is an art heist book about five Chinese American students, they're all in college, who get into the art heist business. It sounds great already. It's very good. I love anything art heist related. And um, also it's becoming a show on Netflix. I I read some. What isn't becoming a show on Netflix? What isn't becoming a show on Netflix? Seriously. I mean, thank God, because clearly we have a short. (laughs) We need all the content all the time. Yeah, I always feel like I have nothing to watch. So like bring it on. But (laughs) okay, well, great. And then for our book club, we're recording in advance, as I mentioned. So me here in the past, I don't know our book club pick, but uh, it'll be on Instagram. So go check out our Instagram bio if you want to know the book. And we will give you a reminder of what it is next week on the podcast. Yes, we will. Stay tuned. In the meantime, if you would like more of us, you can follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. You can also join our Facebook group. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And I'm at Olivia Mentor. And we'll see you next week. 